I'd like to call the Fairview Municipal Advisory Council to order. We are going almost hybrid this evening and are have a lot of people here in the room with us, which is very exciting. I would like to start with a call. Well, I did that, a Pledge of Allegiance. Can we all please stand and pledge allegiance? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. May we please have the roll call? Councilmember Silva? Here. Councilmember Henderson? Excused. Councilmember Higgins? Here. Councilmember Philbin? Here. Okay. We have, we have three people for quorum. Thank you very much. I'd like to let everyone know that there's been a change in the order of the agenda. It will be going 2 1 3. Next, we have the um, next, we have public announcements, open forum. Is there anyone that would like to speak under open forum, either here or online? No. Good evening. Uh, my name is Dan Jackwitz, and believe it or not, I'm a CHP officer. I, I just got off, but... Uh, I wanted to come by and share with you that uh, March is National Women's History Month and with the California Highway Patrol is very special to us. A uh, little backstory in 1987, uh, Congress passed uh, the uh, legislation or act that recognized March as National Women's History Month. For the CHP prior to 1974, a woman cannot hold the position of officer. Well, in 1974, that changed when a federal judge ruled that uh, a woman could hold a position of officer. So it's very, very instrumental and impactful and it really made a difference for our department. Why? Because we, we love our women on the CHP. They're strong, they're bold, and they make a lot of change. So moving forward in 1980, we welcomed our first woman highway patrol motorcyclist uh, officer. And uh, her name was Ramona Prieta. And she went on to be one of our assistant commissioners uh, later on in her career before she retired. And in 2017, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom appointed our first woman commissioner, uh, Amanda Ray, and she served as the head of our department for several years before retiring honorably. So we just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to share that with you and, and let you know that the California Highway Patrol takes pride in not only serving the community, but in uh, welcoming all members of our community to our department. Uh, and we are currently hiring right now. We'd love to bolster our ranks, not only uh, bringing on women officers, but anybody for that matter. Uh, about 5% of our ranks uh, of about 6,500 officers statewide consist of, of women. So we, we definitely would like to add to that number. Uh, but if you're interested in a job with the California Highway Patrol, we'd like you to look us up at uh, www.chp.ca.gov, as well as join the CHP 1000 because we're trying to hire at least 1,000 officers over the next several, several years to get our ranks up. Our mission is to provide the highest level of safety, service, and security to the people of California and the millions and millions of uh, visitors 
that traverse our roadways each year. So thanks for having me. And uh, I appreciate all that you do. And it's good to be with you in person here for the first time in a long time. So thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Is there anyone? Oh, all right. Okay, do over. The order on the agenda will be one, two, three. Okay, one, two, three. Never mind what I said earlier. <laughs> Next, we are still in open forum. Is there anyone online who would like to speak? I think we're supposed to be alternating. Nobody online. Is there anyone else in the room who would like to speak, please? I think they want to speak on agenda items, though. Oh, yeah, no, that, that's later. This forum. is open forum. Yeah. So. Okay, so you're here for open forum, right? Correct. Perfect. Uh, Bruce King with Friends of San Lorenzo Creek. I live in Castro Valley. And I just wanted to announce good news. Um, the San Lorenzo Creekway multi-use trail was approved for funding for $28 million by the, uh, by the Metropolitan Transportation Commission. Um, and it will, the, this trail will run from the bay all the way up the engineered channel to, uh, to Castro Valley and follow streets like Groveway and, and uh, end in the um, Don Castro Reservoir. Oh, okay. And it also go, has uh, on-street trails to the BART station. So we've got over eight miles of multi-use trail approved, $28 million, hard and public works were the sponsoring agencies. It's extremely good news for a community. It should tie things together and get people out to see the creek and hopefully get people to see the salmon and steelhead that try to make it up the creek and don't make it because they can't get past Foothill Boulevard because of the restrictions in the channel. And we need a fish ladder there. So some good news and some things to work on. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, would anyone else like to speak under open forum? If not, we will close open forum and move on onto, on our agenda, which is the approval of the minutes. I show on the agenda one, two, three, four, five months worth of, it, of minutes. Is that what we're doing? Oh. All righty then. So do we need one motion to approve all those minutes? May I, may I make a comment, please? Please. I wonder if, um, you know, I love the minutes. I love five page minutes. So thank you for that. <laughs> I wonder if instead of answering a question, you in the minutes reflected what the answer to the question was. For example, um, I'm just throwing this out there to see if other council members have a similar um, interest like chair Philbin had question about lot one this is on uh, February 7 and it's building coverage concerning the entire lot was covered with a swimming pool she wanted to know if there was a code that stated that a portion of the lot was to remain uncovered well what's the answer to that there's no answer here um, uh, later on in those minutes um, Councilmember Silva wanted clarification on the definition of the term 30 units per acre used in the housing element. Well, 
shouldn't the minutes reflect what's the answer, what the answer is, not that somebody asked a question? Just throwing that out there. Um, Council Member Henderson requested to know what were the deed restricted properties in the housing element. Well, what were they? The answer came out during the um, during the. Um, so just a suggestion that maybe the minutes would be more useful going forward if instead of, instead of stating who asked the question, maybe reflect what the answer was. Yeah, so our uh, minutes are not a transcription. The video, um, that's what uh, you can look back to for those answers. The minutes aren't a transcription of the, of the meeting. So what are they? They are for record. They're so the, re the record is that I asked a question and not what the answer was. So you want to see the answer to well, the question? Well, if the, the answer was given during the meeting, then it should be attached to the question. We can review that with or staff. or or it should say no answer was given. Okay, we can review that with with the clerk's office and staff. Okay, thank you. Also on the um, January three minutes, I think Dan's last name was is misspelled. Did you leave? There you are. Is it spelled J A Z O W? Yeah, that's an old. That's that's. But how do you how do you spell it? Well, that's, that's correct. J-A-Z as in zebra. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, I see, J-A-C-O-W-I-T-Z. Thank you. That's all I have on the minutes, thank you. Okay, thank you. Chris. I just one on the January, on the discussion of uh, can you talk in here, Mike, please? <laughs> On the discussion of the variance, uh, item number three, th th there was quite a discussion about um, easements in there. And we, we should at least have a sentence that, that had, had that, that shows we had that discussion. That's, mm -hmm. that's it, that's all I have. Okay. So where does that leave us with approving the minutes? Are the ones that were commented on, do they need to come back to, to it? Well, I can't call on you, I don't think, yet. And I can't, not allowed. <laughs> Sorry. I'd like to move that all five minutes be approved and submitted with the correction of Dan's last name. Okay, is there a second? Well, could I make an amendment to it? Sure. Well, no, you can't now. You have to second it and then make the amendment. Okay, to it. so I'll second it. Okay, now is there further discussion? Yeah, uh, one amendment is add the discussion of, of the um, easements on that item in, in January. Okay, I'll accept that amendment, thank you. Okay. Okay, so we have um, a motion, a second, an amendment, and acceptance of the amendment. Any further discussion? And we can call for the question. In a row. Mm -hmm, please. Councilmember Silva? Aye. Councilmember Henderson? Excused. Councilmember Higgins? Aye. Councilmember Philbin? Aye. You have three ayes, no no's. All right. Thank you. Okay. That's taken care of. Now we move on to the regular calendar. Item number one water course protection ordinance modification information item informational item that's what i have on my agenda so 
I should now be calling Daniel. Yes, can you, that, that can, can, you, can, you, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Yes. You're on. All right. Thank okay, you very great. much. Uh, Daniel? Yes. Just hang, yeah, hang for a minute. I think we're all supposed to get up and go sit in the front row. So just, just give us a minute. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Thank you very much. This is a, a very brief presentation on the on the proposed workforce protection ordinance modification. Uh, the workforce protection ordinance, as you can see, is uh, is to safeguard and preserve watercourses, uh, protect lives and property, and prevent damages due to flooding and protect drainage facilities and so on. Uh, and we're making some minor modifications to comply with. Uh, some changes that has happened recently. Uh, why, uh, basically, the the primary oh, sorry, the primary issue for element for this ordinance update is to designate a new unincorporated Alameda County stream map, introduce uh, uh, an administrative enforcement procedure, uh, as well as make some minor language changes and clean up uh, in terms of clarifying some definitions. Uh, why a new stream map? Uh, currently, the stream map is subject uh, subject to the WPO is identified based on the, uh, the recent USGS uh, 7.5 minute series maps, what we call the blue line streams. Uh, until the most recent USGS map, which is 2018-21, uh, for the last uh, four or five decades, uh, these things did not change. They stayed the same uh, for enforcement purposes. Uh, and during our field uh, inspection, some of the selected areas that were removed uh, in the 2018-21 uh, map modification, we saw some streams that have uh, streams uh, water in them and that could potentially be considered either perennial or intermittent streams. So uh, we will show that in the next few slides. And, and most importantly, reliance on a map that changes regularly on uh, uh, streams and uh, things that naturally exist that don't change on a regular basis didn't make sense. So I think having our own stream map will be stream map will be uh, a more appropriate approach to uh, manage this uh, WPO. Here is a, a good example of a map that shows you uh, uh, the green lines that you see are the maps that were showing both in the 2015 and 2021 map. And the red lines are the ones that were removed in the 2021 map that used to be on the 2015. So as you can see, there's quite a few red lines that no longer exist. And uh, those are, in our opinion, creeks that should be restored back. Uh, here's a, uh, our field visit. As you can see, some of the tributaries to Ward Creek uh, in May of 2022. Uh, there is some creek, the creek has some water in them a few days after the rain event. So clearly these are not uh, some creeks that should be removed from the map. So this is just to give you an idea, one location. And, and uh, another location is here at Sulphur Creek. 
as you can see, there's some water in there. Some same day field visits. Uh, here's another one on Castro Valley, Kelly Creek, uh, water present. As you can see, the red lines are the ones that were removed from the 2021, the recent USGS maps. And here's another one, Stony Brook Creek, which uh, in our in our uh, judgment is a perennial creek uh, that should have stayed in uh, in uh, in the map, but uh, USGS has removed this from their 2021 map. So the Alameda County uh, unincorporated area stream map is uh, basically a, a same map that used to exist in 2015. Uh, so all the creeks that used to exist prior to the removal in 2015 uh, in 2021 are restored back in our unincorporated Alameda County stream map. And I think that makes uh, a lot more sense because these creeks, like I said, are natural features that don't necessarily change uh, on, a, on a regular basis. Uh, so the unincorporated, uh, the unincorporated Alameda County map will be used to determine streams that are subject to the provisions of the, the WPO. Uh, the WPO will no longer use the USGS topographic map. That's the fundamental shift that we are going with this modification that uh, I'm presenting to you today. Uh, the unincorporated stream map will be available both electronically uh, as well as we have created a KMZ watershed, uh, water course file that you can superimpose on Google Maps and hard copies also will be available at the uh, uh, at the uh, permit centers. Uh, and we also have added what we call frequently asked questions to clarify some of the issues associated with the WPO. Here is what the map looks like. Here's the Northern portion of the county. As you can see, uh, the blue line creeks, what used to be red lines now are all blue line, which means they're restored back in the map. This is the Northern part of the county. Uh, here is the eastern part of the county and these are you know uh, very kind of blurry lines but the blue lines represent the creeks and here is the southern portion so you can see quite a but a substantial amount of creeks are uh, present uh, in these areas so the maps these maps are divided into these areas uh, to just make them manageable, but online, they're all single maps. So the unincorporated Alameda County uh, also uses, like I said, the, the KMZ files so that you can superimpose them on, on Google map that everybody uses. And that kind of makes it easier to see uh, relative to the existing topographic uh, features uh, that you can see on Google maps. Here is a good example of them. As you can see on the background is the Google map with all the uh, greenery and the features and, uh, and, and then superimposed on top of them are the creeks that I'm just talking about. So if anybody was very curious to see, they can zoom down in, 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 in Google and go down and see if they have a creek on their property, for example. So the proposed changes in terms of the language, as you can see, the fundamental change is replacing the USGS 7.5 minute series topographic maps with the unincorporated Alameda County stream map. And that basically kind of creates a very stable mapping system that does not change 
year over year based on USGS uh, determinations. And uh, the other thing that we added is, uh, you know, it, it is kind of difficult to get uh, hearing officers and various things. And we tried that over the last couple of years. So we said, hey, why not use existing community-based type of uh, 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 system that we already have? So the BZAs could be now the hearing uh, bodies for this any kind of, uh, you know, uh, abetments and uh, any kind of issue that is associated with violations. So the administrative enforcement process that used to exist is now replaced by using uh, BZAs as the hearing bodies for uh, WPO violation related activities. So these are the, some of the other definitions and clarifications. These are very basically to kind of make it easy for people to see. Here's a typical cross section of a, a stream and we have a definition of what the, each one of these are, including the 20 foot setback that's required from the top of bank. So that's what you're seeing uh, in terms of clarifications. And then you have flood, flood plain, floodway definitions that we're making them consistent with uh, generally the, the FEMA definition of those facilities so that whenever we are applying the language, it is consistent across the board with both FEMA and the WPO. So that's uh, basically a, a clarification statement. And then you're gonna see a series of pages here with uh, frequently asked questions. These are not part of the ordinance. However, these will be incorporated into the website so that whenever people have questions, they can go first look at, you know, what is the purpose of, for example, the first question, what is the purpose of the Alameda County Water Course Protection Ordinance? You know, uh, when do I need to obtain permits? So these are a series of pages that I have included uh, and you can look at them at your leisure. Uh, because they all, this whole presentation is attached to your uh, your uh, package today. So here are a series of questions. Like I said, where can I find the stream map? And, uh, and are there any exemptions to the water course permits? So these are new things that we have created that actually will help the, the reader or the person interested in the WPO understand the purpose as well as how to navigate uh, the permitting process. So. Uh, I think that covers all, like I said, this is a very brief uh, amendment to the existing ordinance. Uh, hopefully everybody could understand that uh, having a, a map that is fluctuating based on some USGS determination should not be uh, affecting the way we enforce the water course ordinance. And I think we find it to be a lot more uh, convenient to have our own map that could be updated on a regular basis. So uh, with that, I'll answer any questions you may have. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, Dale, do you have any questions? I do, thank you. Daniel, thank you so much for undertaking this. There was quite a void created when the USGS dropped all those creeks and waterways from protection. And thank you for stepping up to, um, to lead the effort to, um, to, to restore, restore protection for them. I have a question about intermittent streams. Um, in November, the Friends of San Lorenzo Creek <clears throat> stated, um, Starting in September 2021, the Friends of San Lorenzo Creek requested that Public Works Act to regain protection of intermittent streams under the WPO. 
I think I just heard in your presentation that they are covered. What, what's the status of intermittent streams? And then also, if you could um, tell us, please, the difference between intermittent and ephemeral. So uh, the, I think the intermittent streams are covered. The ephemerals are not. So it's it's just a matter of how much water exists after a certain amount of uh, a rain event. I think the, the standard definition for intermittent is 10 days after a rain event, if you still see uh, water in the creeks, they're considered intermittent. So uh, uh, that's why we have included the intermittent uh, streams. So uh, the ephemerals actually are uh, a lot more uh, uh, nuanced in terms of whether they're considered an actual stream or not. And I think that was debated for a while. And at this time, in order to make sure that we move forward with a map provision, I did not want to complicate the, the debate as to what type of streams. Uh, I think our best strategy at this time is to regain back the things that the USGS has removed and let's restore those things back. And if necessary in the future, we can always expand the definitions of stream as necessary. But uh, intermittents are included, uh, perennials are included, the ephemerals are still uh, uh, not yet included in the, uh, in the WPO. Okay, okay, good. I, I understand though, I'm told that that uh, on the maps that you have, some of the creeks are, are not shown. Some of the ones that were on the USGS map and were protected don't, don't appear um, on, on our public works map. Is that possible? It is possible because we, we continue to modify these things, update them. As you know, these are, uh, it's not, a, it's not a, a very scientific process. Sometimes we find we missed a stream here or there. Since uh, I started this process about six, seven months ago, we've been updating it on a regular basis. As we find something that we missed, we incorporate them. So uh, there's no intentional abandonment of any stream. Actually, if the stream is considered to be ephemeral or a perennial, and we don't have them in ours, I would appreciate anybody letting us know so that we can incorporate, incorporate them. Okay, thank you. What, um, does this need to be approved by the Board of Supervisors or, or this can be approved administratively? No, I think it has to go to the board. It's a, an ordinance modification. So the next step is probably I'm gonna be going to the, the Planning Commission uh, to present that uh, uh, and get their perspective and then we go to the, uh, the board. So we're the last Mac on the on the roadshow. And from the Mac point of view, yeah, I've done it to the Castro Valley Mac and the Eden Mac, and you guys are next. So that's Sonoli. Uh, we could go to Sonoli if necessary, uh, but uh, I'll see. I haven't. I haven't. Uh, okay. Okay. I haven't considered that one. They've got a big creek running through and lots of tributaries, Kilcare Creek. But thank you for that. That's all I have. Thank you, Daniel, again, for undertaking this. Yes, okay. sir. Thank you, Dale. Chris. Uh, yeah, thank Am I on? Is your button up? It's up. And you're on. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, Daniel, I, I'm, as you know, as we've discussed, I'm, I'm really pro this this update and it's, it's really just a kind of a technical update I think but a, a couple of comments one um, using the BZA for for all the hearings uh, 
creek related is is really a good idea i why not use them for for all your hearings it's a pretty trans pretty transparent um process and um anyway you, you could answer that in a minute uh and also i, I think friends of san lorenzo creek brought something up uh, asking that we take can get a look at a uh, a marked up copy of of the ordinance so we could see everything that's crossed out and and added um that that's about all the uh, the, the items i have dale dale had a pretty good uh, pretty pretty comprehensive uh list but just two um two tangential items and, and maybe you could address it after after this was uh do we have a scheduled opening on a street and uh are we still on target to break ground on the the d street sidewalks in april given all the stuff on your plate right now thank you sure thanks uh Quick update, I think anytime we can get an opportunity to use the BZA, we'll be glad to use them for any hearing. Believe me, we we uh, we like to do that because uh, number one, it's not easy to get a hearing officer from the state uh, GSA. So uh, yeah, we will we would be happy to use the BZA because that's, that to me is a number one, they're part of the community. So that's kind of give you an additional legitimacy. Second, uh, are the, this, like you said, this is a technical update. Is uh, the quicker we put this map together, the more, the sooner we can incorporate the protection of these creeks that were removed uh, under USGS. Because right now the ordinance has written references to USGS, so which means those that are removed are no longer protected. So the sooner we do that, the better. So we can uh, and uh, we can provide you the markup uh, ordinance because the, the changes are not, there's nothing really more than what I just described in terms of changes. Quickly, uh, A Street should be open. Uh, unfortunately, we're getting a lot of rain, anticipate all the way until this Friday. So uh, A Street should be opening up. Uh, my hope is by the end of uh, a week, uh, next week, uh, hopefully. Uh, D Street, unfortunately, uh, we run into a few problems. So April doesn't sound like a groundbreaking time. But uh, I will uh, communicate with you directly, uh, uh, Chris, uh, once I get a little more detail. But I've, I'm, I have learned that we've run into a, a little bit of a challenge uh, uh, that we have to work out. So uh, there might be some delay in terms of district uh, groundbreaking. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you so much. Um, I don't know if what I have to say is a comment or a question, but I would have loved to have been able to have our council support this going forward. Is there a reason it's not an action item for us since it has to go to the planning department? I, I don't know if you'll know the answer to that. Does Ashley know the answer to that? Oh, it is. Uh, yeah, so uh, the reason we did not want to make it action items throughout this year is to, so that everybody could give us a feedback. And if there was an obvious resistance or anything that we should improve, we could have incorporated it. And then we would have restarted the whole process. But from everything that I have seen up to now, uh, all the Macs are very supportive. Uh, I probably anticipate a little more resistance from the planning commission environment than I would uh, anywhere else. But 
uh, I will I will say that as you vote on this informational item, I mean, as you listen to this informational item, I don't think there's nothing that stops you from expressing your collective uh, desire to support this. Uh, and and from what I've heard up to now, it looks like all the Macs are supportive. Okay, well, thank you so much. Is, is there, I'll now move to public comment on this item. Are there any questions from, from our audience? Yes, we have uh, speakers in the house. Uh, Michelle, speak. Is this on? Okay, great. Well, I just wanted to do address the WPO because there are, there are a lot of us that are directly affected by this. A lot of us actually own property that these drainage ditches run through because that's what a lot of them are now. Um, you know, everybody says that there's, it's changing, it's changing. That's why we have to review this. Well, it sounds like it hasn't changed for four to five decades. That's not a lot of change. So, you know, some people want to say, okay, so what changed? Why did the USGS do this? What changed? Well, in 2009, Obama granted a bunch of money to the park system to look into these things. Now, we hadn't done a survey of our waterways in 40 to 50 years in a lot of places. So some of this money was used to do this. And that's great because we needed this. Okay, so then the USGS worked with a bunch of scientific institutions to complete multi-year studies. And this is what they came up with. Now, there's a lot of people that don't like that. They don't like what came out of this. But the problem is they did the studies. And what we're proposing here is not scientific data. It's not scientifically backed. There are no studies. And also, I also wanna say that a lot of people say creeks don't change. That's not true. The creeks might not change, but what's around the creeks do change. We've had quarries, we've had dams, we've had fish ladders that are now being instituted because of these dams, as an earlier speaker pointed out. So not getting the public as involved is a problem because there are a lot of people out there that actually own these properties. And now you're going to put a bunch of things in place to affect them that has not affected them as of late. And yes, I understand there are a lot of people that feel very strongly about this because I know there are at least two individuals that were previously um, in this room that were previously involved in the 2007 to 2011 um, review of this water course. Okay, now if we had a review with a citizen's review board in 2007, why are we just arbitrarily making changes now with absolutely no scientific data? Even Daniel admitted that there's no scientific data behind this. Do we need to protect these things? As an owner of this, yeah, yeah, we need to protect these things. But we need to do it with scientific data. We need to involve the community, especially the people who actually own this property. I'd like to know what the county's gonna do to let these people know that all of a sudden they're gonna have these limitations on their property that they haven't had for the last five years. That's a loss of property rights. That could be a liability for the county. So basically all I'm saying is that, yeah, let's do this. Let's review this, but let's not just change things arbitrarily with no scientific data, something that could affect thousands of property owners. And I just wanna say thank you for opening this back up and having it in person again. That's really nice. And I appreciate that. Thank you.
Thank you for your comments. I appreciate that. I have that. a question. May I question the speaker, please? Sure. <clears throat> so how, how, how would this ordinance affect your property rights? You don't own the creek. Actually, I do. You do? I own part of, and in fact, I own to the center line of it. And there are quite a few property owners that do own to the center line of many of these properties that you're talking about putting limitations on. Well, the the uh, inability to develop within twenty feet of the bank is 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 that's not new to this ordinance. No, it's not. However, because my property is not currently involved in this, um, it would now all of a sudden make it so I can't put a fence along that creek. And we've got a serious homeless problem. We've had the park rangers out there over the last six years. We've had them out there four times cleaning up homeless encampments. Now, if I can't have a fence down there, because now all of a sudden I can't build anything down there, that's a problem. That's a safety issue for me and my children. And that's what I'm saying is I'm saying that each of these properties should be evaluated. Each of these waterways should be individually evaluated to make sure that this is the proper thing to do. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other comments? Yes, next speaker will be online. Matt Turner, you have three minutes to speak. Hi, glad to see you all there. And thanks for being able to do this in a hybrid fashion. Uh, I had uh, baseball practice with my son tonight, so I couldn't be there in person. Um, and I'm sure other folks are in a similar situation. So this is, this is really excellent. Uh, I spent many years in the very room you're in right now uh, as part of a review board going over the watercourse protection ordinance, you know, uh, more than a decade ago now. Uh, and it was, uh, it was quite an effort uh, and it ended up being scrapped. Uh, and, you know, the update uh, that, that we worked on, we, we lost a lot of that work um, for reasons I'm not going to get into now. Um, but getting a, a full accounting of the watershed has actually been on the books for Alameda County since the 1970s. There's a plan that's gathering dust on the shelves at uh, the planning department called the Specific Plan for Areas of Environmental Significance, which is, was approved by the Board of Supervisors and uh, was supposed to be implemented, but never was, that in, uh, included a mandate that uh, there be a full accounting and, and uh, surveying of all of our waterways and, uh, and, and watershed. So that we could have a better understanding of how to protect it and and uh, you know what measures to take. Uh, so I don't know about going back and 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 rehashing what was done years ago. It was quite a thorough uh, undertaking with with stakeholders from all sides of of the issue uh, that came to a fairly excellent compromise on a lot of things that uh, that folks found uh, very agreeable. Um, you know, looking again at what was accomplished over that time might be a useful exercise. And then also it might be good to remind the supervisors that, that it's already on the books to do a full surveying and counting of our entire watershed. And, uh, and that, you know, the effort that Daniel's undertaking should be well-funded so that it can happen in a, a thorough, scientific, and, uh, and valid way. Those, those are my comments. Thanks. Thank you, Matt. Are there any other comments? There are no other speakers. Next uh, speaker in person, Bruce King. Hello, Bruce King with uh, Friends of San Lorenzo Creek. 
Um, thank you, Daniel and Public Works for uh, getting this water course modification um, uh, going uh, again. Um, uh, Friends of San Lorenzo Creek has been encouraging this action because uh, we basically lost protection for hundreds of miles of intermittent streams when the USGS maps changed. Uh, Friends of San Lorenzo Creek basically says, let's protect the same streams that we've been protecting for the last 40 years since the water course protect protection ordinance was put into effect. So it's no expansion of the water course protection ordinance. <coughs> It's just protecting these streams that we can obviously are intermittent streams. When you go out and look at them, they're flowing uh, well into May. Um, it, and it's at some point during the summer, these intermittent streams start to dry up, but they're des deserving of protection. Just, just to note, uh, the Water Board and Fish and Wildlife define a stream that has protections under their jurisdiction as any watercourse that has any defined bed and bank. I mean, it just doesn't have to be much. If you see erosion and, and it's, it's starting to look like there's a, a bed and bank, it could be a very small stream. It's protected under the regulations. So this ordinance only gives public works and the uh, ability to enforce on these larger intermittent and perennial streams, but all the streams are, have protections. Um, just some, some things that Friends of San Lorenzo Creek thinks that we should be adding to this process. We should be seeing an edited version of the water course protection ordinance with the proposed edits so that the public can make comments and public works can address those comments. We haven't really seen that. We've seen a PowerPoint presentation, okay? And uh, I've, I've scrutinized some of the, the edits that I think are being made um, because some of them might potentially weaken the water course protection ordinance. Friends of San Lorenzo Creek isn't advocating for any other changes because we think what's there has, has enough teeth. Um, we should, the Q&As that are developed should define things like development structures and permits, which are defined in the water course protection ordinance. Those are very important definitions that the public needs to, to know about. Um, and and um, we should also, we've, we, like people like Friends of Southern of the Creek has commented on streams that we don't see on the maps, just a, a few of them. I, I've reviewed the entire county and looked at all streams and I've made comments. I haven't heard, heard back and other citizens have made comments about the, the online maps not being in the exact location where they should be in various locations. So we need to, the public should see the, those comments coming back like, okay, we corrected this or we didn't correct that. And uh, we should be assisting project proponents in understanding the water course protection ordinance. And these other jurisdictions like uh, the water board and fish and wildlife and what streams they, they, uh, they regulate. But they, the, the Q and A's only say that, um, um, that maybe citizens should contact the, the water board and fish and wildlife on these streams. But the average citizen doesn't know what's a stream and what's not. Thank you. Thank you very much. Are there any other comments? We have no more comments. Okay, if there are no other comments, I will close public comment. Are there any other questions from the council? Dale? Um, <clears throat> Daniel, uh, <clears throat> uh, you just heard Bruce King request a copy of the edited version of the um, uh, the proposal here of the uh, the restoration of the, of the WPO to cover these creeks is that is that 
possible to get at some point along the way? Yeah, yeah, uh, it's available. I think Bruce has seen it. I don't know why Bruce makes a statement, but uh, I have, I'll make it available online for anybody to see. Thank you. And then, then there was a question about the, the definition of, of structures associated with it. Our, our, <clears throat> I'm not sure exactly what that yeah. means. But... Yeah. So I think, I think uh, uh, you know, sometimes we, we tend to expand. This, this is a workhorse ordinance. We're not defining what development should be, should not be in a watercourse ordinance. We're defining the setback requirements uh, in a watercourse ordinance. So uh, I am not making, like I said, I'm making the technical changes so that we can include all the creeks that were removed by USGS, nothing more. So uh, I think this is a, a, bi a big value uh, as, a, as a common good for the community. I think we should uh, and approve this thing. And you know we can always change ordinances. We can always modify. We can always edit as necessary. Uh, so, but at this time, I think it's in our collective interest to make sure that we protect these creeks that were lost under the modification the last time. So, uh, that's uh, that's what I can say at this time. One last question, if I may: Are, are any of these creeks privately owned? Most creeks are privately owned. Are any of them? Any of these creeks we're talking about? We had testimony yeah. earlier. She, yeah, that, most, uh, most, most creeks in Alameda County, I would say uh, in a tune of uh, maybe 80% is owned privately. Okay, thank you. Yes. So, thank thank you. you. Chris, do you have any other questions? Um, yeah, Daniel, just thinking about some of Bruce's Don't comments. Don't your microphone. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, thinking about Bruce's comments, um, I'm, I've noticed some creeks near me that that aren't on there, and uh, one is uh, on um, on Maud. We had a, a property uh, come before us for uh, a subdivision, and there's. There's water running through there. there. There's something cutting into the water table, uh, even in the summer months, July and August. And yes. the, uh, the developer is, uh, he, he says he's only responsible for addressing the runoff that, that comes from his development and, and he's, he doesn't have to accommodate the other runoff. Is that correct? Uh, I think we better, we better discuss this offline. I'm not sure exactly I understand your question. Okay, no, that, that's no, fine. No. We, but but if, you have, if, you have, if you have any creeks that are not on the map, then we could incorporate them. We, no, these are things that we will continue okay. to update. So we can do yeah. that. Exactly, and, and I'm and I'm not sure they they really, really are creeks. But you know, when their water run water runs through them in July and August, um, it certainly is a water course. But uh, yeah. yeah, we we can get together offline. Yeah. On that. Yeah. Uh, and and lastly, you know, Bruce's item. I'm sorry. Thank you, Sally. Um, I'm spoiled uh, coming from home. Um, 
lastly, uh, Bruce's Bruce's comment about you know getting uh, um, some published document responding to all the all the public input that's come in that would really be helpful, uh, especially when that comes up before planning and unincorporated services, and and that's all. Thank you. Okay. Uh, thank you, Chris. Yeah. Um, I don't have any other comments, so I think that that's a wrap on this item. Okay, moving All right. on. Thank, thank you very much. Good night. Thank you thank very you. much, thank Daniel. You, Daniel. Appreciate Thanks, your Daniel. time. Number two, United States Postal Service, place name, zip codes, and unincorporated community identity information item. Allison, are you on? Okay, and then we're gonna move out to the audience. Is there gonna be a PowerPoint on this one? Allie has just moved over, so hang on one second and she has her PowerPoint. Good evening, are you able to hear me? Yeah, we, we can, can hear you, Allie. Okay, great, thank you so much. And good evening, my name is Allie Abers. I'm a planner with the Community Development Agency. And I'm here with an item um, about USPS mailing addresses and community identity in unincorporated Alameda County. So I'm gonna go ahead and pull my PowerPoint up. Give me one second. Okay, you're able to see the PowerPoint? Yes. Okay, great. So um, starting with the issue, uh, USPS assigned mailing addresses may not accurately reflect unincorporated community names or boundaries. And this has unintended consequences, including causing confusion, impacting community identity, hindering data collection, and influencing resource allocation. So, uh, and just to, to back up, this project seeks to address this issue. A bit of history about what has uh, been known um, as the zip code project. Supervisor Nate Miley launched the Eden Area Livability Initiative in 2004 with the goals of improving, improving the quality of life and health of the residents of the urban unincorporated communities. And ELI, as it was called, had two phases. So during ELI phase two, which ended in 2029, uh, there was a zip code realignment project that arose from the governance working group to address the unintentional impacts of zip codes and USPS place names on the unincorporated communities and their identity, data collection and service delivery. And beginning in 2019, the governance working group began working, uh, sorry, began researching zip code realignment options and processes. And then in 2022, Supervisor Miley requested CDA's help um, with further research and support for this project. So that is um, when I joined the project. And just to note that this project focuses on the urbanized or urban unincorporated areas of Alameda County because the residents of these communities have expressed concern about community identity, um, so it does not cover uh, East County. So some examples of this issue. Um, USPS place names are not consistent with urban unincorporated uh, area places. So in this first, uh, this first example, this is the Reach Ashland Youth Center. And it currently has a USPS place name or preferred last line of San Leandro. So the preferred last line is an official um, USPS place name that's associated with the post office branch that delivers your mail. Um, the unincorporated, sorry. Uh, 
Uh, do, 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 here we go. So as you can see in this example, um, San Leandro is the, uh, the place name that's used, whereas this address is in fact in an unincorporated, um, in unincorporated Ashland. So in this, ex this second example, um, there are inconsistent boundaries. So Castro Valley and San Lorenzo each have their own post offices and place names, but the USPS place name boundaries don't match the boundaries of those communities. So this is an example in Castro Valley where you can see that over here in the 94546 has a place name of Castro Valley, whereas 94578 has a place name of San Leandro. And this is because uh, in the 94578 uh, zip code, it is the San Leandro post office that's delivering the mail. So as a very busy map, so don't worry about memorizing it, we'll go into this in more detail. But currently there are four USPS place names that are in current use in the urban unincorporated communities. And those are Hayward, Castro Valley, San Leandro, and San Lorenzo. And as I mentioned, that's associated with the post offices that deliver those mail, uh, the mail to those addresses. So I won't go into too much detail in Ashland, but there are currently three different place names um, that folks in Ashland would use, San Leandro, San Lorenzo, or Hayward. Likewise in Cherryland, if you live in Cherryland, you would be using either Castro Valley, San Lorenzo, or Hayward as the last line in your, uh, in your USPS address. Folks who live in Hayward Acres use Hayward as their preferred last line. In Castro Valley, there are two zip codes that do use Castro Valley as their preferred last line. Um, and then the other zip codes use either San Leandro or Hayward as their preferred last line. And I'll pause on this one for a moment since we're here in Fairview tonight. Um, so uh, in Fairview, the majority of Fairview is using Hayward as your prefers, preferred last line, but there are small sections um, that may be using Castro Valley in the 94546 or 94552 zip codes. And then in San Lorenzo, San Lorenzo does have a post office. So most folks living in San Lorenzo uh, have San Lorenzo as their USPS place name, but there are some residents of San Lorenzo who might use San Leandro or Hayward as their preferred last line. So the county is able to request changes from the US Postal Service. Option one um, is, and I'll go through these options in greater detail. Um, option one is the preferred last line place name change uh, and PLL is, we'll, we'll use place name change for the most part for that one. Um, PLL is what the USPS calls it officially. Um, option two is an alternate preferred last line change or an alternate place name change. And option three is a full zip code boundary realignment. So some details on option one, this is the preferred last line or place name change. And in short, what this means is that residents would use their community name as the official place name on their mail. So official, what that means is that USPS would recognize your unincorporated community name. So for example, Ashland, Cherryland, Hayward Acres, Fairview, San Lorenzo, or Castro Valley um, as the default place name. And that would be reflected in USPS.com searches. So in our example, previous example of the Reach Ashland Youth Center, um, currently their official preferred last line or place name is San Leandro. And if the Board of Supervisors decided to pursue this change, their USPS place name would officially become Ashland, California. Um, so looking back to that, uh, that Fairview map, um, 
your place name would officially become Fairview for anyone located within Fairview. Um, so Hayward and San Leandro would cease to be official uh, preferred last mile lines or place names in unincorporated or on USPS.com. But residents could continue to use that old USPS place name. So in the case of Fairview, you could continue to write Hayward as long as you use the correct zip code and street address. Um, and zip codes in this uh, example would not change. So option two is the alternate preferred last line or alternate place name change. And in this option, residents could use their community name, uh, community name on their mail, but it would not be official. So in the case of the Reach Ashland Youth Center, um, their preferred last line place name would remain San Leandro, but USPS would also accept as an alternate Ashland. Um, so you could, in, in the case of Fairview, you could write Fairview on your mail um, as an option, but your official place name would not change. Um, Hayward and San Leandro would remain official place names and unincorporated, um, and the change would not be the default on USPS.com. And option three, a full zip code boundary realignment. Uh, the county could request, so the county could, uh, can or could request a change to zip code boundaries and place names to align with the communities. Um, and the details of what the county would request to so the specific changes um, would have to be worked out during that process. Uh, the USPS um, in this option requires the county to send a survey to all impacted addresses. 50% uh, of those surveys need to be returned and 50% of the return surveys um, need to approve of the requested change. And a survey response does not, a positive survey response does not guarantee approval. And the USPS has indicated that they will always offer options one and two as accommodations during this process. Um, USPS has indicated that it's a long and costly process and that they rarely approve this type of request. Um, and just a note that it would require additional coordination with cities. So comparing some of these options, how long would they take? Um, the, the option one, the place name change, would take about six months from the time that the county uh, makes the official request. Option two, the alternate place name, uh, would take about one month from the time of request, so really quick turnover on that one. And a zip code boundary review could take a year or more from the time that the county makes the request. It's quite a long process. How likely is USPS to approve it? Um, option one, the place name change, they're quite likely. They've indicated that is something they would be supportive of. Um, option two, the alternate preferred last line. We said uh, it's almost guaranteed, so quite likely. Um, and option three, the zip code boundary review, they've indicated that they're very unlikely to approve this change. Will it be the default on USPS.com? The place name change, yes, uh, it would be the default. Unincorporated community names would become the official USPS place names on uh, USPS.com. Option two, alternate preferred last line. Um, no, it would not be the default on USPS.com. The default would remain um, as it is now. And zip code boundary review, yes, this change would be official um, and it would become the default if it were approved. So as a resident living in an impacted community, is it optional for you? Do you have to make this change when you're writing your mail? Um, so place name change, it is optional. So this is an official change. As I said, it's reflected in USPS.com, but residents can still choose to use either one. So they could choose to use the new place name or the place name that they've always used. Um, both are options. 
Alternate preferred last line, likewise, this is not an official change, so residents can continue to use the old one um, or the new one as they wish. And a zip code boundary review, um, if you are in a zip code impacted by a zip code boundary review, you, you would not have the option of choosing to continue to, to use either your old zip code or your old place name if it happens to accompany a place name change. Um, because this fundamentally changes the way that mail is delivered. Um, so you would need to use the, the, the new option. So back to that community identity question, how does each of these options help with community identity? Um, the preferred last line change does um, strengthen unincorporated community identity because USPS default place names would accurately reflect unincorporated community boundaries and names and particularly because the, the, the names of adjacent cities, San Leandro and Hayward would no longer be uh, the default place names in unincorporated. Option two doesn't do as much um, because it doesn't remove those city names from the unincorporated mailing addresses. Um, and I think that's a lot of the confusion um, comes in from, from those mailing address uh, city names. Option three would, would definitely um, strengthen community identity by helping to align those official mailing addresses and zip codes with unincorporated communities. Would it impact mail delivery? So the first two options are not expected to impact mail delivery because as I said, they don't change the way that mail is delivered. So as long as you continue to use the correct zip code um, and the correct mailing address, um, if you, you, know, you use the old or the new place name, your mail will get there. And then zip code boundary reviews, because it does fundamentally change the way that mail is delivered, it is expected to uh, impact mail delivery for potentially up to a year, um, is what USPS has said. So would you need to buy new address labels? You're a business owner, uh, homeowner um, in one of these impacted areas. So with option one um, and option two for both, you can continue to use your old labels as long as the zip code and the street addresses are correct. And then with option three, um, if you're in an impacted area, you would need to buy new mailing labels um, because the, you know, the zip code would have changed. And uh, just to note, businesses may also need to change advertising or signage if they have an old place name or zip code um, in, in the zip code boundary review option. And just exploring other potential impacts. Um, in option one, the place name change, there are possible improvements to data collection um, for data collection that uses place names. Um, so an example might be census. Um, and then there are unknown impacts outside of uh, the way that the county and the USPS uses addresses. So I'd be interested to hear um, from you here or members of the public uh, about any other ways that they, that they might expect um, uh, a place name change to impact them. Um, and likewise with option two, no impacts anticipated. Zip code boundary review um, could substantially improve public data collection. Um, and there are other possible impacts to this where zip codes are used, for example, insurance rates, district boundaries, potential annexations. Um, so there's a lot to think about with a zip code boundary review. And just to note for all three of these options, USPS has indicated that regardless of which one the county pursues, uh, we would need to wait another 10 years before pursuing another option. So cost to the county. Option one, the place name change does have some associated cost. Uh, we would need to purchase an address list and we would need to do a mailing to inform residents. 
Option two, there's little to no cost. Um, there's a, an optional mailing that we may do, um, but would not necessarily have to happen. Um, option three has the highest cost because we would have to purchase an address list and um, the survey that I mentioned. So we would have to do that, that survey to all impacted addresses. And then because it has such a, um, it has that 50% required survey response, it's likely that, that the county would need to do some door-to-door -door outreach to reach that 50% mark. So it's the community process for this. Um, so right now we're gathering input, um, coming around to the max and um, talking about this item and, and hearing what the community thinks in order to make recommend recommendations to the Board of Supervisors. So um, let's see if this schedule is still correct, I believe. This is correct, except that uh, we've, we're going to be going to the Eden Mac in um, April. So other than that, this is this schedule is correct. Um, the Board of Supervisors will direct staff about which option to pursue. And then uh, at that point, staff will gather address data and begin to make the request to the Postal Service. So some feedback that we've received so far um, and some questions. So folks wanted to know how many addresses will be impacted. Um, there are about 27,000 parcels um, that we would anticipate to be uh, impacted by this, but as you probably know, uh, there may be more than one address on a parcel, so we wouldn't know the, the complete number of addresses until we purchase that address list. Um, there's a question about whether this project will fit uh, fix city name discrepancies in the county assessor's data, um, and it won't directly do that. These are separate initiatives because the USPS and county databases are unrelated, but this project could help to inform improvements to county uh, other county data. Um, let's see. So this is to that, that earlier question. Uh, somebody noted that um, the preferred last line change may have some unanticipated consequences because of the ways that place names are used. So for example, um, somebody in, in an earlier meeting said that you can get into the San Leandro City Golf Course for free if your mail says San Leandro. So if your address changes to Ashland, how does that impact you? And our response is that option one doesn't fun fundamentally change community boundaries. Um, it would just give you the option of writing either your community address or uh, your, your previous place name on your mail. Um, so let's see. Folks wanted to know how they could request more USPS drop boxes. So we gathered a phone number there. Um, and generally speaking, Unincorporated Services was supportive of option one um, and the supervisor signaled support um, and asked us to uh, to uh, bring some of these ideas to uh, around to community for feedback. So from the chamber, um, a commenter noted that most Eli governance participants who initiated this project wanted option three, um, and that most of the members of the chamber uh, may not live in Ashland or Cherryland, which are some of the communities that are most impacted by these issues. Um, and that commenter wanted an additional documentation from USPS about how difficult they've said it would be to pursue option three and additional information about the LAFCO study impact. Um, so we're looking into those. Um, other comments were generally supportive of option one. Um, and we are working right now on a survey um, that the Eden Chamber has uh, offered to, um, to send out to their members. And I think we'll probably end up doing, um, I'm hoping a community-wide survey as well. So feedback from Castor Valley Mac, um, as you saw, I think in the earlier maps, this 
cash, the cash rally area is not as impacted. Um, and uh, comments were generally, again, supportive of option one. And it sounded like they were, the Castro Valley MAC was interested in hearing more about the impacts on uh, other more impacted communities, such as Fairview um, and the Eden area. So again, a summary of those options. Um, option one, the preferred last line or place name change. Um, in this option, unincorporated community names would become the official default USPS place names and San Leandro and Hayward could still be used, but would no longer be official. In option two, alternate preferred last line change, the official default place, uh, place names would stay the same, but residents would have the option to write their unincorporated community names on their mail. And option three, zip code boundary review. The county could request uh, changes to zip code boundaries and place names to better align with communities. Um, and just to reiterate, uh, USPS has indicated that these are costly and rarely approved. So given all of this, the staff recommendation is to pursue option one, that preferred last line place name change, uh, because it helps to establish unincorporated community identity and, and meets a lot of those um, initial uh, issues that, that we discussed. Um, it has potential for helping data collection to better reflect unincorporated. It's achievable. Um, it's likely to be approved by the Postal Service. It's a lower cost to the county uh, than a zip code boundary review. And the change is official, but it doesn't force residents to, um, to change the way that they're used to writing their mail if they don't want to. And we have just gone live with our website today. So um, I encourage you to visit and sign up for our mailing list um, and check in for updates occasionally. Um, and I believe that is all I have. So I'll stop sharing. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for such a thorough report. Uh, we really appreciate it and are excited about the prospects. Dale, do you have any questions? I, I do. I do. I do. Um, with, with option one, whereby the post office officially wouldn't recognize Fairview um, as a legitimate <clears throat> um, quote unquote area, um, is there a, a, a vote of Fairview residents to determine what they would prefer, if it's okay with them, or how, how is the decision made? Is this, is this what you're doing now is to, um, to get feedback from different groups and make a recommendation to the Board of Supervisors? Is that what's going on? That, yeah, that is the process that we're undertaking at this point. Um, there, I am interested in doing a, a, a web-based survey, um, and if that's something that would be of interest, I, I'll I can make sure to um, to let our our team know that. Um, but yeah, at this point, that is the process. Okay, thank you. Okay, Chris. Yes, th thank you for your presentation. Um, I think Piedmont went through this process maybe about ten years ago. So. Um, what what option did they do or, or don't you know? That is a great question and I do not know, um, but I can look into it. I, I've heard that there are, so it's difficult to get information from the USPS about um, the specifics of who has pursued um, the full zip code realignment. Um, but in, for example, Emeryville, uh, I understand that Emeryville and um, Kensington in Contra Costa County, 
And um, it sounds like Piedmont might be another option where they have, I think they might have the alternate place name where they can write either. Like for example, Piedmont would be either Piedmont or Oakland. Uh, Emeryville would be either Emeryville or Oakland. And I think Kensington might be Berkeley or Kensington, uh, but I'm not sure if they're, I'm not sure if they're alternate or if they're the official preferred last line change. But I do recall that USPS uh, has noted that the full preferred last line change might be a new option that they're offering. Um, and that it was previously something that they only offered once you'd gone through a full zip code realignment process, but now it's something we can pursue directly. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I don't have any questions. Are there any questions from our audience? I believe we have questions from the audience. Okay. We have questions online as well. Anyone in the public? Nobody in a room, just online, speakers only. Thank you. Matt Turner, you have three minutes to speak. Hey, Ali, thanks for the, uh, the presentation. Uh, this is something I worked on extensively uh, as part of the Eli Governance Group. Um, yeah, we've, we've got six, six zip codes across the urban and incorporated area, and half of them say Hayward or San Leandro. Um, so it's, it is a, it's, a, it's a big challenge. Um, and one of the things, though, that that uh, uh, that I, I think folks uh, would be it'd be good for folks to hear about is that um, you know the state and federal data collected about our area uh, is almost entirely done via zip code. And when we're conflated with cities, uh, that often puts that data into the, the neighboring cities. And like an example is nine four five four one Hayward. Um, less than half of the people who live in 94541 actually live in the city of Hayward. The rest live in, in uh, um, you know, in Fairview, Cherryland, San Lorenzo, and Hayward Acres, and, and uh, a little bit of Castro Valley. Um, and so uh, when speaking with, um, with both um, uh, then uh, Senator Harris and, and uh, Senator Feinstein's office, they indicated that, that uh, there was a, it was a significant challenge to get accurate data uh, because of, of the, uh, the overlapping uh, zip code. So uh, it, it harms us in significant ways in terms of funding and, uh, and, and, and community recognition. And, uh, and there are ways that, that uh, public health data too gets, gets hidden. Uh, when you look at things by census tract versus zip code, uh, there are often these large pockets of extreme poverty or uh, poor health count outcomes that get diluted uh, when, when looked at through the zip code, uh, when it's, when it's misaligned and, and shows, uh, uh, you know, communities that we aren't, uh, specifically Hayward and San Leandro. So, uh, you know, option, option three resolves that option one doesn't option two might a little bit. Um, so just, just my two cents on this thing. Um, you know, it is a really complicated process. Um, and it is a good idea to shoot for the possible rather than perhaps the one that can solve all the problems. But it doesn't mean we can't uh, uh, pursue option three with help from uh, federal representatives because it is a federal issue um, ultimately. And uh, if we can find allies there, that can go a long way to convincing uh, you know, the, the post office. Uh, all of the um, successful efforts that I've seen involved significant cheerleading on the part of local federal representatives. 
uh, you know, on, on the issue. Anyway, again, great presentation. Thanks for the info. And thank you, caller. Can you um, tell me your name again? I didn't catch it. Matt Turner. Oh, Matt. Hi, sorry. I thought I recognized the voice. <laughs> it's me. Are there any other uh, commenters? Brenda, you have three minutes to speak. Yes, hi, that was an excellent uh, presentation. I have a, an issue with option one um, for two reasons, for our area. I live in Fairview and 94542. Um, years ago, what was it? 30 years ago, maybe 35, our street name changed. And on many maps and um, th that the county has, it's, it's still our old street name. And Comcast refuses to uh, change my bill to Star Ridge Road. It's always East Avenue. Um, so uh, I think there'd be a problem with option one. And for instance, if your driver's license says Fairview and your DMV record says Hayward and things like that. So I think option two is something we are already doing. Um, many of us, I don't know if anybody in Fairview still has their return address as Hayward with the zip code. Mine's always been Fairview, never had a problem. It's just the vendors and the utilities and sometimes the county uh, doesn't recognize where we are. So as far as the expense of doing that um, for the county and the, I think we're already doing option two is what I'm saying. I, I do uh, feel sensitive about the other areas that uh, have a vast number of, um, zip codes and for the reasons that Matt Turner suggested, but I just wanted to say, I've been using Fairview 94542 for years. Thank you. Thank you, Brenda. Is there another commenter? There are no more speakers. All right. Hearing no more speakers, are there any other comments from the council? If I may. Dale, yes, please. Yeah. I am. Um... Option three, I remember at the Eli meeting, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a different recollection of this than uh, Matt does apparently, but uh, representatives went to the post office and they said, there's no way we're realigning zip codes. All our routes are dependent on the zip code alignment that we have now. It would cost a fortune. We're not going to do it. So I, uh, I thought that was a definitive word on option three. I uh, hate to disagree with Matt and Brenda, but I like option one where we are told that our address will be Fairview. Option two, I've been afraid to try. Uh, you know, it, it, you can, we can do it now. We can we can um, uh, have a return address of Fairview, an official address of Fairview. And um, I, Brenda's the only one I'm aware of that's done it. I, I, I'm happy to be corrected, but I'm afraid to do it. But in option one, if it's determined by the post offices, this is what your address will be Fairview, or Ashland or um, uh, Cherryland, then the issue is resolved and the post office knows it and you can have the confidence that your mail is gonna get there. They're not gonna be saying, well, where's Fairview? Thank you. Thank you, Dale. Chris? Hey, Dale, now you know two people that use Fairview on their mailing address. Oh, I'm, in, I'm really in the dark, aren't I? <laughs> it, I it's not everything, but I, I, I do use it often. So, uh, I, you know, my preference for it would be option two being the, the lowest cost option, but 
I'm not, and I, again, I, I, I heard what you heard on option three, which was really big pushback on, on the postal service. And so in my mind, it should be option one or option two, but we just got to hear from the rest of the community. So thank you. Okay, thank you, Chris. Well, I guess I'll be changing my address level because I didn't know I could do that. Um, so thank you very much for that information. Are there, and let's see, that's it for us. So thank you, thank you so much for this presentation. It was thorough, it was informative. And we really appreciate you taking your time to be here to share with us this evening. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. I think we will now move on to item number three. Objective standards ordinance for unincorporated Alameda County informational item. Presentation of the draft objective standards for residential and mixed use residential development. Rodrigo, are you available? Okay, he's, he's being moved over. Okay, thanks. Yes, good evening, everybody. This is Rodrigo Orduña with the Alameda County Planning Department. I'm here good tonight. Good evening, Rodrigo, welcome. Thank you, yes, hi, good evening. Uh, I'm here and hopefully my other um, colleagues uh, for tonight's item can also be brought over as panelists, um, Tom Ford and Phil Erickson. Uh, I am here tonight along with members of the M Group to speak uh, about the draft objective standards that the county is taking to uh, be adopted by the Board of Supervisors ultimately. We are right now taking uh, some suggestions and um, back and forth conversation that county staff and members of the M group had with um, subcommittees of the four MACs, the Castro Valley MAC, the Ferry MAC, I'm here tonight, Ferry MAC, Eden MAC, and the Sinal CAC. Uh, we met twice uh, as workshops uh, to present uh, some existing conditions and some administrative draft language for objective standards. We got comments from that working group, um, and we are here tonight to present the draft objective standards for your consideration. Um, so tonight's item is, a, is an informational item. It's not uh, meant to be a vote. We want the, the plan commission to take the vote on the recommendations with input from the four, uh, the, the four MACs, the, the Castro Valley, Fairview, Eden MAC, as well as the Sonal CAC. Uh, we want your comments so that we can further refine the objective standards and then take those further refined objective standards to the, to the planning commission. Um, as uh, you may know, the need for objective standards is such that we can be more in line with what the state is requiring of local jurisdictions to present developers and the community with very clear um, regulations on uh, residential development, multifamily residential development. And that is defined by the state as anything more than one new dwelling unit. 
Um, so anytime there's two or more dwelling units proposed or subdivision proposed uh, that results in two or more um, residential lots, then we must provide the developer and the community with a, a clear objective standards that are published so that everybody can review. Um, so what we've done is we've taken the design guidelines and um, which are part of the residential design standards and guidelines, and we're making them into these objective standards so that so that there's clarity in the regulation for development review of residential multifamily residential units. Again, any residential units more than two. So I did uh, provide a staff report for for the Fairview Mac. Uh, we do have a PowerPoint that I'd like to introduce uh, Tom Ford, uh, and he will be leading the PowerPoint presentation. And then after that, we will have Q&A with your board as well as members of the public that wish to speak on this item so that we can um, take what has currently been drafted and further refine it and then go to the plan commission. We would like to take these objective standards to uh, public um, discussion at the plan commission, the transportation and planning um, committee of the board of supervisors and ultimately adoption by the board of supervisors sometime in in um, in the summer, late summer, um, where we're, we're trying to move this along so that we are more quickly in line with state regulations and we don't have to um, seed development <clears throat> regulations to, to developers. So, so with that, I'd like to turn it over to Tom. Thank you, Rodrigo. I'm going to share my screen. So I'm Tom Ford from M Group, and I'm here with uh, my colleague, uh, Phil Erickson from Community Design and Architecture. Uh, we're the primary consultants to work with the uh, county staff and the working group of you uh, MAC members uh, to develop the, the standards in, in front of you tonight. Let me just move that over there. So uh, the agenda that I'd like to go through very quickly before we get to the fourth bullet point, which we don't have to do quickly, that's your discussion. But first, I want to give a little introduction, remind you, uh, because it's been a while since I've been in front of uh, some or all of you, uh, remind you what we're doing, give you a very brief overview of the objective standards, why, you know, what it is, why it's come to us, what uh, types of state legislation have caused this to be needed, give a brief overview of draft objective standards, and then uh, let you have uh, a discussion, take comments. And then I'll just briefly talk about the next steps, although basically uh, Rodrigo already basically told us. So if you'll recall, um, you submitted two people, the chair and the vice chair, as it turns out, to be on the working group from, from, your, from your community, from your municipal advisory committee. And together with two uh, members from each of the other MACs, uh, that working group met twice. At the first meeting, we did a lot of overview and talking about some of the issues that we found that were very subjective in the existing county documentation, not just in the development standards and design guidelines, but also, for instance, in the recently adapt adopted Fairview specific plan, in some of the general plan, uh, the Castro Valley general plan, uh, different various planning, uh, county planning policy documents, and took some of those subjective ideas 
and had a discussion with the working group to talk about what was really important, what, what stood out, what could we try to objectify. So then we went away as a consultant team and worked on uh, bullet point number two, developing um, in coordination with county staff, uh, some preliminary standards to bring back and discuss with the working group. So at the second working group meeting, bullet point number three, we um, talked about some of these ideas. They were drafted in draft text form. Uh, many cases, there were potential graphics that could go together with, uh, with the standards to illustrate how they might be implemented. And then we went away and did bullet point number four, which is took the that input and created the documents that are in front of you right now. And for those, for especially for the two people here tonight that were on the working group, you'll probably notice that whereas before we were really going down a path talking about multifamily and mixed use typologies, that kind of development, as we worked on this bullet point number four, really drafting the standards, uh, we the county staff and us realized that we really needed to uh, flesh out some potential, uh, you know, objective language for the development of uh, townhome typologies. So that's why there's two documents in front of you, one that clearly states that it's for a multifamily or mixed use project. That's typically as defined in your development standards document from 2014. And then in these objective standards it's defined typically as a multi-story building with one entry. So you go into a lobby or an elevator lobby and you access the units from inside the building. The townhomes on the other hand are typically um, ground floor entries, and they are typically uh, multiple entries on a facade. So it's a multiple entry building, and those are all defined um, objectively in the in the documentation. So with the with the finalization of those two documents, and then also the uh, lot size consistency standards, which you have in front of you tonight, also we are now presenting to each of the MACs. Uh, this is our team. I'm the, the guy on the upper left. Uh, I'm assisted at M Group by James Jimenez. And then Phil is with us tonight. And he has a number of people uh, from his firm that have helped him create um, the standards and uh, graphic content in front of you today. So we've already been to the Castro Valley Mac about two, three weeks ago. We're with you tonight, March 7th, and then next week we have two meetings. We'll go to the Eden area, and then we'll also go to Sonol and have a very similar meeting, try to get reaction, comment from the, the community and the members of the public that attend those meetings. So there were three specific documents, as I pointed out, that are in front of you tonight, draft documents, the multifamily and mixed use objective standards. Um, then there's also the townhouse objective standards, and then um, some objective language to firm up the, um, the specific plans uh, policies regarding lot size consistency. So let me just give you a brief overview. Um, I know the last time I was with this entire MAC and the time and also the meetings that we've had just with the working group, you've seen some of this, but it's always good, particularly since it's been a while, to refresh our memories. This uh, is language from SB 35, which really clearly defines what an objective standard is. There's no room for 
there's no room for error. It's not like you can say one thing and I can say another thing or we're both defining the same word. If a word or a term isn't easily defined and understood by both parties, then it's not really objective. So uh, what we've done is tried to remove any kind of language um, that uh, leaves doubt and leaves the, uh, the ability for there to be a difference of opinion. And in some cases, we've provided graphic content to help illustrate that. Um, so briefly, why is this happening? <laughs> well, as, as you'll recall, there's been a lot of, a lot of legislation in Sacramento over the last, you know, five to six years, um, that has put things. If 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 a project has the right kind of affordability, and meets other requirements, it puts the development review process on a ministerial track, and quite often with a constrained timeline. Let's say sixty days or ninety days. So. Um, and in right within the legislation, it says you know the only thing that can um, be can be used to guide um, a community's ability to push back on something that might not be in keeping with what the community wants is an objective standard. So all of these various um, rules and regulate legislation um, are guiding this process that we've been going through right now. This started in 1982 with the Housing Accountability Act, but in 2017, 2019, the Housing Accountability Act was updated with some other legislation, um, including SB 330. Um, so the legislation, we've been keeping track of it at our firm, just you know, basically able to give little thumbnail descriptions for people. But there's, and so there's a whole wide range of uh, subject matter of what you see in the blue text up above, project approvals. There's, there's a legislation that's guiding this. And as you can see, SB 35, the streamlined approval process, it has to, the, the ministerial process has to happen in a certain number of days, depending on, on the development typology or number of units. Um, here's the first, I think it's the first update to the uh, Housing Accountability Act on the left, SB 167. Um, up at the top, parking and project approval. Some of these, uh, some of this legislation is very targeted about, you know, if you are within, if your project is within a certain um, distance of a verifiable transit opportunity. Um, there's certain regulations that you can't you you can't enforce certain parking minimums and things like that. So, a lot of different things uh, have been coming down the pike, and they all point to the need for objective standards to be the guiding tool that staff will use in a ministerial process. Here's SB 30, 330 on the right, an update of the Housing Affordability Accountability Act. This was called the Housing Crisis Act of 2019. Um, and it goes uh, into greater detail about what kinds of um, rules and, and things can be used to guide development. Zoning, uh, these are more recent uh, just last year, both of these uh, regulations or both of these pieces of legislation are starting to talk about affordable housing on uh, parcels that are, are presently zoned commercial. So uh, in certain circumstances, you know, an affordable housing project can be uh, put into a ministerial process and um, 
with a timeline, a strict timeline, and the only um, governing factor will be objective standards. So it's important that when somebody comes in and has an application, um, the develop the objective standards need to be adopted um, before they have to be in place at the time of the application or um, they, they can't be used. So just to, re, to reiterate then, the design guidelines, which uh, again, from your existing county subjective policy and design guidelines, we've really used those as a launching pad to, to do our work that you see in draft form tonight. Um, and the design guidelines, <clears throat> you've been using those in a discretionary way during your approval process, both in your individual MACs and also at the planning commission, you can look at uh, your documentation. Let's say it's the 2014 development standards, residential development standards and design guidelines. You might use a combination of the development standards, which are very clear and objective, but then you also might negotiate with an applicant using some of the material in the subjective chapters. So all of that has been happening in a discretionary form. And now that has to happen for, for qualifying projects that'll need to happen in a ministerial process and um, only using these objective um, standards. So in case we're still not clear on some of the differences, but also I'm gonna show you these slides just to point out how uh, some of these terms, they, they, it looks pretty set in stone, but there's a lot of there's a lot of wiggle room, and that's what we had to work to get rid of. So, for instance, design buildings to be respectful of adjacent buildings. One person's idea of being respectful is going to be different than another. Uh, create transitions. Um, the city of San Mateo uh, last year actually lost a, a lawsuit. They were sued by a developer over the word transition. And they won at the Superior Court level in San Mateo, but then they lost um, at the appellate level in Los Angeles, the appellate court in Los Angeles ruled against them because the word, they didn't define a transition either. Uh, we're using, let's say a metric, like a transition is actually two stories or 15 feet or something that, you know, two people on opposite sides of a table can, can agree, yes, that's a transition. So a lot of this language we have to really comb through and try to find ways to make it objective. So let's see how would, would we do this. Here is an example from our multifamily draft in front of you tonight uh, to maintain pri privacy on adjacent properties, a minimum five foot wide landscape buffer shall be provided between the de two developments. Um, the buffer shall include <clears throat> a solid wall, the wall, there's given measurements, even the trees, it doesn't say plant some trees, it says how many qualify to be that tree canopy, or how many need to be provided to, to meet this objective. Here's another one. Built, built space landscaping, lighting, and other devices shall be used to create strongly defined edges. My idea of a strongly defined edge might be different than, you know, a math teacher's or, um, you know, a poet or, you know, different people are going to have different interpretations of some of this language. 
a sense of enclosure that's going to be interpreted differently by different people. So again, you have to weed that out and find a way to say the same thing in something that is measurable and easily defined. If you think back to that language from SB 35 that I showed at the beginning, it has to be easily defined and known by both sides. I think this is the last one. Design residential projects to avoid large box-like, you know, what's a box? You know, is it a, is it a square, is it a cube? Is it, uh, you know, a cylinder? What is it? Box-like form, uh, you know, a large box-like. For me, a large box might be four stories. For somebody else, it might be two stories and that's too large. So again, you need some metrics or some way of providing um, specificity to this language. So here, uh, this is taken from our draft townhome document in front of you tonight. So we talk about this, the ground floor facade plane, which is the blue piece that pops out between attached units. So this gray is one unit, this is a different unit, this is a different unit, but it says the facade plane on the ground floor must be offset a minimum of two feet. So this thing here, it's clearly defined. And then in case the definition wasn't easily known, we actually provided a graphic uh, to help someone understand, oh, okay, so my ground floor has to bump out or bump in a minimum of two feet in one direction or the other to satisfy this standard. So with that, um, Again, I wanted to uh, leave most of the time for you guys to discuss and listen to comments that may be coming in. But so there's this concept of multifamily in front of you and the document is laid out in two sections, site design and building design. And then within those two sections, they have some subsections. Similarly, uh, the townhouse standards in front of you tonight are divided into two sections just like the other one, site design and building design, and then very similar subsections um, with a little bit more specificity, um, specifically for utilities. The last piece um, for which we provided a draft to the MAX, Castro Valley a couple of weeks ago, you folks tonight, is the language on lot size consistency. Hopefully you had a chance to see this in your packet because um, since you're in the Fairview area, this specifically addresses a page out of your recently adopted specific plan, takes the language that's there, which is very similar to a, a piece of zoning code that applies to Castro Valley, and tries to provide, well, it does provide objectivity to both uh, what are we talking about in terms of uh, the subdivision and the units, and then what are we talking about when we when we define surrounding parcels. So for each of these, it's trying to be very specific and give a clear indication of what can and cannot be measured uh, when looking at a subdivision that might come in and understanding whether or not it fits uh, a neighborhood. So a good way to think about this, which I'm sure you've already struggled with is, this is a lot about neighborhood context and community character. And just think about those terms. They're very malleable terms. They're very easily, they're, they're easily considered differently by different people. So what we've tried to do 
is recraft that policy in your specific plan into a, a, an objective uh, standard regarding lot size consistency. The last thing uh, that we're working on that will we'll, we'll solidify once we get through the planning commission and, and probably even the board adoption is we're creating a checklist for, for the county staff so that when these projects come in and they have this constrained timeline for project review, the uh, staff can you know, pull open a binder and start to really understand, okay, what are the rules that are applicable to this particular development? So, what you, so I'm just showing you a cutout of a page here. So for instance, the first step that an applicant would go through is just talk about, well, first up here, they, where is it? So what are the rules governing the development? So once they identify the site, uh, then they can get into what are the basic zoning standards. And then uh, step three and step four um, are once these adopt, once these um, objective standards are adopted officially by the supervisors, they'll be worked into step three and step four. So not only will the planner then be able to just clearly and, and you know, fairly quickly go through and check off, does it meet it, does it not, where does it, where is it shown, how does it meet it, um, the objective standards will be included in that checklist, depending on the type of project it is. So now I'm just going to leave it, uh, I'll give it right back to the chair and um, let you uh, lead the discussion and then I just have, you know, one last slide to show after you've uh, closed discussion and give us, given us any kind of direction that you care to give us tonight. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen and let you um, let you go. Thank you very much, Rodrigo. Um, lots and lots of details. Oh my goodness, it's amazing. Um, what you have to go through to try to put together a document that just might work. Um, so let's start. Dale, do you have any questions or comments? Yes, I do. Thank you. Um, so <clears throat> if a developer submits an application and all the boxes are checked, all the objective standards are met, then the approval comes without benefit of a public hearing. By ministerial, you mean the county staff can approve it and then um, that's it. Is that is that correct? Uh, correct. Okay. Now, uh, if if they if the staff determines they need a variance for something, then um, there, there there would be a public hearing to to uh, or a series of them to vet that request for a, a variance. Would that be true? Correct. So, for instance, if there's you know one standard that they can't meet, they would have to go into a discretionary process, and that would include a variance. Uh, uh, a variance would qualify for that. In the, uh, in the packet you gave us, uh, that we got in our packet, there's a statement there. It says, objective design standards are a powerful toolkit that allow communities to respond to state housing laws that are reducing local control over development. So it's how, how, um, how are objective design standards helping us respond to state housing laws that are reducing our control? Be, without the objective standard, your control would be, re, your local control would be reduced. 
So when a project comes forward, if there are no objective st standards that have been adopted, in your case, the Board of by the Board of Supervisors, the development application only has to meet what's in your zoning ordinance. So when we say that we're trying to, we, we're making a community toolkit, that's where we draw from your existing subjective guidance. And some of those uh, subjective tools you use when you've had a discretionary process, we're trying to objectify those so that once they get um, adopted by the board, they will become part of the approval process that staff uses in a ministerial process. But it takes away, not to belabor this, but it, a ministerial decision takes away local control because we don't have a public hearing where people can speak and the appointed body can weigh in. Right. And this process isn't doing that. This process is responding to that. The state legislation created that, took the control away from you. And, and without objective standards, you have less control. What we're trying to do is create a way for the community to uh, ha have some of its aspirations bubble up into that ministerial process. So this is Rodrigo from planning. So as an example, right? So um, SB 35 uh, affordable housing projects are ministerial. They do not need uh, public hearings. One is not required. Uh, in your case of Fairview, the vast majority of the lands in Fairview are single family detached. So for example, in your case, you would be doing subdivisions, right? And the subdivisions, a subdivision of five or more um, units still requires a uh, public hearing. But like we learned at um, with one of our recent projects, uh, the the um, the law size consistency language, for example, was considered too vague, and so we're trying to uh, button that up to make it enforceable, so that you do have an enforceable uh, objective metric for uh, developers to consider when they are proposing subdivisions. And subdivisions, they are considered to fall under SB 330. Um, those still require, uh, those are still allowed public hearings uh, for, to make sure that that um, community knows and that the, the, the development standards are, are met. That's one level of review, uh, subdivisions. But for uh, what, what uh, Tom is talking about, the more restricted affordable housing component, if it qualifies as affordable housing, multifamily affordable housing, and they apply for uh, SB 35 protections and those do not get public hearings and all they all all that staff has in order to regulate them um, is the current um, zoning ordinance and the half of our residential design standards and guidelines document because the other half as written in 2014 and 15 uh, included guidelines included shoulds um, and and uh, conformance with or or consistency with or, or respect for that kind of language. And so we're trying to convert that language into more uh, quantifiable objective standards that, that are more black and white. So, so uh, just to, to dovetail what Tom said, there are projects that already, such as SB35 projects, we, we, they, they do not require uh, public hearings. Uh, and the, the state every year, year after year, is is putting more pressure on local jurisdictions to move faster with reviews of those. And if we don't have checklists, if we don't have objective standards, then we're going to be very limited in saying, well, no, don't uh, don't just uh, give me the height that's already in the zoning ordinance. Um, I also want you to break up the massing. Well, if I don't have any quantifiable um, 
language about break up the massing, what that means, then all I can say is stay below the height limits. Yeah, yeah I, I appreciate that, Rodrigo. In fact, <clears throat> following up on that, a lot of what was in the packet discussing the subject was not nearly as ominous as I thought it would be, um, breaking up the facades. And one last, one last thing, if I may, prevailing lot size. Uh, the objective standards will, um, quote unquote, protect our emphasis on prevailing lot size and development. Is that, is that safe to say? Right. So, so, you know, there's, there's various ways to go with this, right? There's already different lot size minimums in your specific plan. There are certain parcels that require um, five acres, one acre, um, 10,000 square feet, um, 6,000, 5,000 square feet. Additionally, in the specific plan, there is the lot size consistency regulations when somebody's subdividing a parcel. Um, so as you may recall that that language uh, was uh, considered too um, too qualified, uh, not not quantified enough, not direct enough. So what we're trying to do with this uh, lot size consistency language is maintain the lot size consistency language, but just give it some numbers. Yeah, and and um, you you may, as I wrote in the staff report, the Castro Valley MAC, which has similar language, they voted. Staff said, okay, well, just keep your keep your lots larger than. The, the lots in the neighborhood and we define the surrounding area. Castro Valley Mac had said, well, why don't you allow for uh, some more flexibility, either a five or 10% uh, reduction in the average lot size for Castro Valley. What we're trying to do is keep everybody so that a developer comes in and, and in unincorporated Alameda County, um, you've got hills, you've got uh, a proximity to, to um, repair and habitat, you've got uh, lots located on private roads, you've got lots located on public roads, you've got flat lots, uh, you've got large uh, uh, lot size minimums or reduced lot size minimums. But overall, even with the varied topography and the varied geography, we're trying to remain these standards in order to make them enforceable and, and reduce confusion uh, more standardized throughout the neighborhoods. So a uh, parcel on a hillside with a 10,000 square foot minimum in Castro Valley uh, next to a creek should have similar regulations than a parcel on a hillside next to a creek with a 10,000 square foot minimum in Fairview or in Sonol, et cetera. So, so we're trying to establish that as best we can to reduce the confusion, reduce um, the, the, the uh, potential for, for mistakes uh, so that everything is more standardized. And so if you're looking at your law size consistencies uh, language here, you can, you know, either, uh, uh, Go with what staff's recommending, just to make it more quantified, more more numeric. Um, if you choose to to provide some some leeway, that I think the language previously was parcel should not be substantially smaller than the prevailing lot size in the neighborhood or the the average lot size in the surrounding uh, in the prevailing neighborhood. So so you know substantially is is not a black and white quantified uh, term. Uh, prevailing is not a black and white quantified term. So we're trying to we're trying to create that black and white language. What term would it be? Well, um, whatever the draft is, I don't know if, if um, Tom I can, can share my screen. put up that slide. Yeah, and and we recognize that the vast majority of your projects here in Fairview are going to be regarding um, subdivisions uh, because most of your zoning is for single family detached. 
Okay, well, we can skip that question. I have one last thing, if I may. On the 500 feet, when, when determining the prevailing lot size for a, uh, a single family residence, say, uh, every property within 500 feet will be part of the formula that determines the prevailing lot size. Is that fair to say? Correct. That's what the draft language every, every, That's exactly right. Every property, because as, as we know, Often on the site development reviews that we get, the planner will kind of cherry pick what properties are out there to, well, to so, add. Well, there are yeah. some caveats here in the smaller bullets below. For instance, greater than 30% slope, you wouldn't count that parcel. Um, so it has these four caveats, but it's otherwise, it is any parcel within 500 feet of any part of the subject, subject parcel being subdivided. Good. Um, the the check sheet, the, the sample, the sample check form that you showed, is that available? Um, no. The reason why I'm asking, environmental health is considering coming up with a check sheet like that to help uh, to give to uh, folks who are applying for septic system development uh, to standardize the responses that they get from the applicant. Is that is that available? It will be eventually. It right now, until the standards get solidified by the board and the and the and the board of, by the planning commission and the board of supervisors, the uh, the standards haven't been set, and we so we haven't added yeah, those in yet. Of course. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Rodrigo. Sure. Thank you, Dale. Chris, do you have any questions? Well. <clears throat> It's more of a comment. Um, Dale, you might agree with me. The, uh, the Fairview specific plan that the community developed had a whole lot of shalls and not very many shoulds. And the Fairview specific plan that came out of planning replaced all of them with, with shoulds. So, I'm just expressing my frustration. Um, and the lot size consistencies, um, what in the, in the Fairview specific plan, I, I thought we were pretty specific about what's, what's comparable. And did, did that get eliminated? I, I, I'm, Help me out here, because I thought we excluded the um, the developments that somehow got smaller lot sizes for whatever reason, and uh, we've. I'm, I'm having trouble talking. Uh, I'm, uh, that's enough out of me. Well, Chris, if I could, um, I'm looking at the page 3-18 in the Fairview specific plan. Um, it says things like, um, new parcels must be consistent with the existing land use pattern of the surrounding neighborhood. So it doesn't really define, well, what is surrounding? So now we say 500 feet. What is the existing pattern? So we, we say, take all those parcels that are, that are covered get the average size and that's the minimum size. You must be exactly the same or larger than that average size. So 
there is a little bit of wiggle room in the specific plan language, and that's what we've tried to firm up. Okay. It's now 8 o'clock, and the library is closed. Please exit the building. We reopen tomorrow at 10 a.m. Okay, that's good information. Uh, so the, the wording in the new objective standards, you, you exclude lots that are smaller than the minimum size. Is that, is that correct? Um, smaller than that, those that are allowed by current zoning of that district. Correct, correct. So when, when we have a situation where we have 5,000 square foot minimum lots and within the 500 feet, there are a considerable number of 4,000 square foot lots that are excluded from the comparison. Correct. If that zoning district, uh, if, if it's below the minimum size in the zoning right. district that the subject parcel is in. Yeah, the, the example I used was 5,000 square foot okay. minimum. And houses with 4,000 and 4,500 would be excluded. Correct. Okay. okay, good to know. Thank you, Thank you Chris. I must, I must say that I, in sitting on this committee, I did find it um, frustrating because there, there wasn't the, the ability to, and I guess this makes sense, you know, so this is just me floundering around um, because I have such a huge problem with this whole thing anyway, this personal opinion. So for what it's worth, but in going through it, we did make an effort and I joined in that effort to create standards that were definable and understandable. And to the extent that you've been able to bring those forward, I appreciate it um, very much. Um, despite my personal opinion, I, I got on board and I worked this, this program and this challenge with the rest of the group. Um, so Rodrigo, thank you for bringing this forward. I don't have any questions. Um, are there comments? Uh, I'd like to open it up for public comment now, please. I believe we have one comment online. All right. Go ahead, please. Matt, you have three minutes. So uh, just really quickly, um, I, you know, I, I share your frustration in this, this mandate handed down from the state and uh, great presentation and uh, really commend the job being done to try and give us some chance at being able to defend our communities in some circumstances. Um, one of the things that, that uh, I'd like to see in there, uh, and this, this is across the unincorporated area, um, is that uh, we don't really adhere to what public amenities are available. Um, very well. Uh, oftentimes that's uh, a responsibility that's handed off to special districts uh, when in reality it is the planning department that, that, that uh, is the guiding light for the special districts as far as what amenities are available. Um, you know, in, in many of our communities, there are no parks and, and with Hayward's recent close, closing of schools, there are no schools. Uh, and the idea that we would dramatically increase 
density in neighborhoods where there are no parks, no schools, no sidewalks, and not easy access to transit or ADA compliant access to transit, that it is a cruelty to inflict uh, greater density on such communities. And, uh, and unless we call that out specifically, that that's a standard of living that we expect, um, you know, things like Ruby Meadow will continue to be inflicted upon us where we're dramatically increasing density uh, in neighborhoods that can ill afford it. Uh, and the folks who will be placed in those dense neighborhoods will have uh, a substandard uh, living condition uh, you know, welcoming them when they move in. So uh, thanks for all your efforts on this. I know this is a lot of uh, deep dive technical work, and I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for, st for sticking up for your community and, and uh, doing your due diligence. Appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. Are there any other comments? All right, then I will close public comment and ask if Dale has anything further. Only that I, um, um, before before this came up on the agenda, I was pretty skeptical of the other subjective standards thing, but it, it looks like it is an encouraging thing for us who wish to have some semblance of local control and, and Rodrigo and, and Tom, you all seem to, uh, to have our interests at heart in a lot of this, in the sense that you're doing all you can for those of us who want to keep local control. I think the principal issue for Fairview, as we've talked about, is prevailing lot size. We, you know, the Castro Valley said, well, how about 10% wiggle room or whatever, if I understood it, that would not be me anyway. Uh, in, in Fairview, as a general rule, the bigger lot that's allowable, the, the better, I would say. So thank you for all your good work, both of you, all of you. Thank you, Dale. Chris. Um, one other item I didn't bring up earlier is uh, regulating parking on narrow private streets. Is there anything in the legislation that prevents us from establishing adequate parking requirements? So for detached uh, single family, we have the what's already in the zoning ordinance. And um, when we have uh, minimum uh, clear area uh, uh, as allowed by fire departments, right, the 20 foot wide uh, fire access lanes. And then beyond that, uh, cars could park if there's parallel parking uh, allowable in a subdivision. Uh, if not, then then the uh, subdivision would need to park itself. Um, they could uh, use uh, public street frontage if there's parking allowable in the public street frontage as guest parking. Um, for multifamily housing, again, if uh, multifamily housing is beginning to be regulated more and more by the state, especially affordable multifamily housing, uh, the state is declaring that um, uh, one parking per unit uh, is enough if there is no uh, high-frequency uh, public transit, um, or if there is high-frequency public transit, then no parking would be required. Um, that's um, there's different there's different regulations, right? SB nine, which allows for subdivisions uh, of single-family um, uh, single-family zoned parcels from one to two. The, that's a Parking standard that the state is is uh, has has superimposed for, for through SB nine Senate Bill nine. Um, that's true for ADUs, um, and that's true for uh, multifamily affordable housing. Thank you. 
So, so those would be limitations that we have locally. And also, um, Chris, on page three of nine in the townhome objective standards, standard 1.8 towards the top of the page, internal streets and driveways serving five or more units shall be designed to be a minimum 20 feet wide. So that's very, that's pretty explicit. Um, it would require when the fire marshal is doing, is part of this um, uh, ministerial review, if they determine that they want to uh, demand that red that the curbs be painted red, they would have to uh, also include that. But we we don't call it out as no parking, but we just say there must be a minimum of twenty feet wide. Okay. Um, so we've got a lot of narrow private streets in Fairview that are, I, I think the definition, the, 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 they were called out in the 1980 specific plan having inadequate maintenance agreements. And the, the county was tasked with addressing that. Um, let's see, 1980, that's 40 years. Is the county going to address that? So you're talking about the requirements for public streets? No, and private public... streets. But my, my concern is we're, 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 we're under pressure to add private streets in, instead of public streets. And our experience in Fairview isn't very favorable to that. So what, what are our options? on that? Do we have a standard that, an objective standard that can require public streets? Um, that would be something we would talk with our um, public works folks. And as you know, the, um, the District 4 office had, had requested that subdivisions, especially in due to situations such as Fairview, we look into uh, requiring starting off with the, the requirement for for public streets and then going on from there if, if a public street is not feasible or or reasonable in in, in uh, some of the subdivision cases so who's who's making the definition of reasonable so so uh, we have thus far uh, deferred to the um, public works uh, agency in determining whether or not they would be accepting a public street, uh, a dedication in a subdivision for a public street as part of a subdivision. Uh, we can look into this further and, and uh, include it in these objective standards if that's the desire and, and it gets, you know, it goes through to, to uh, adoption. Um, it's my understanding that in not all circumstances, uh, for subdivisions, are 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 public streets considered the most feasible result for a subdivision? But again, we can we can re look into it uh, per your per your uh, request. Usually, usually, the definition of feasible comes from the developer, and and there's some friction there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously, the, the developers got you know some monetary incentive to make the streets as small as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So yeah, we 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 can look into it again uh, in with our public works agency uh, colleagues and uh, include it in a uh, recommendation that this MAC has, and we will we will um, push it forward as a recommendation uh, for adoption. Okay, and, and maybe we could check around the state at what other jurisdictions are doing. Okay. That's all. Tom do, you have, Tom, do you have any experience with other cities you worked with on on uh, subdivisions and what they? No, the only experience I've had, and it's been a while, um, has been, you know, jurisdictions that don't want to be responsible when a street gets too narrow, so they actually require the developer to make it a private street. Um, which includes maintenance, uh, you know, all, all everything, fire access, everything like that. That's then the limits of my experience. Uh, with regard to what Chris is saying, anything that we could write, it certainly won't include the word feasible because that's a word that's mm -hmm. it's different things to different people. Um, I don't know of any jurisdiction that would just require the absence of private streets, that you can't develop a project unless there's a public street. I think as much as you might wanna, and I, I'm happy to be part of this conversation, Rodrigo, as much as you wanna speak with the public works agency, you might also wanna speak with the county attorney because I don't know that we can write an objective standard that sort of um, handcuffs a development application that severely or strictly. Okay. Well yeah, it would be great to hear back on that topic. I actually have a, a comment related to um, what Matt Turner brought up because their view is almost exclusively, not 100%, but almost exclusively non, um, what's the word? We don't have businesses up here, okay? We don't have restaurants, we don't have gas stations. We don't have uh, shopping centers. We don't have grocery stores. So if you were to put in a bunch of affordable housing almost anywhere in Fairview, if the people having access to that affordable housing really are those people that are lower income and are in need, they're, they're set up on islands of, you know, they can't get to anything. So the idea of, of amenities in the, in the area um, to allow them access, you know, when Hayward, city of Hayward puts in a bunch of housing, they're surrounded with um, stores and groceries and all of those things that people need, they, they can walk to. But fair, and Castro Valley, Castro Valley has lots and lots of businesses. Hayward doesn't, I mean, excuse me, Fairview doesn't have that. So for any sort of a, a plan, um, objective standard plan for creating neighborhoods that are um, set up for success, there's got to be ready access to amenities. And I think that needs to be um, a consideration. You know, I, I, and probably Fairview is not the only community that's like this, but it, it is in, in this specific, you know, the ones that we've been talking about most recently. So I would make a recommendation that the amenities be included as um, a consideration. 
Right. That would be that would be pretty difficult to do. You know, to again, consideration is going to mean different things to different people. Well, um, you know, that's my language right now. I, I'm not right, trying. Right, right. Okay. I'm just I'm just saying um, the the way the objective standards are coming or are being developed is more at the building level and maybe well, sure. the okay. level. And yeah. the legislation's pretty clear that once you get beyond that, the only thing that can really um, uh, deny one of these projects is a health and safety concern. Well, so and that concern be, is, you know, what about a walk index? You know, how, how long does it take to walk someplace? Because I'm telling you, you know, you can look around at the slums all over this country and there are places where amenities are not available to people. You know, I can live out in the middle of nowhere and I've got a car and I can go anywhere I want. But, but people who are looking for affordable housing, you know, may not have a car. They may not have a way to get to the store or they may have one car. And so one of their people is off to work with their car and the other one's stuck at home and they can't get anywhere. I'm just saying, I know what you're dealing with from the state. I'm just saying that it's extremely short-sighted and it's setting us up for slums all over this place because people can't get out to get what they need. That's all I'm saying. And I think there should be some consideration for that. Could, could I? Please. So Tom, the walkability index is, is an objective measure. And it, range, it run, ranges from uh, car dependent to very walkable. It's a numerical scale. Um, is there anything that prevents the use of that in, in these well the, the thing that I think would be hard with that is you know for instance you look at a parcel let's say someone wants to develop a parcel and right now it has a really great walkability index because there's a grocery store you know a hundred feet away but then they build the project and the grocery store decides to close so what happened to their walkability index so I think you have to be careful if you're going to tie things to uh, to things that are uh, offsite and uh, and easily changeable. We can we can look into it, but I I think that the state would not look favorably upon us trying to uh, develop that kind of a an approach. But we can look into it. Yeah, I love you to look into it because the more people look into these things, maybe people elsewhere will start to take notice rather than us just rolling over um, just because it seems like it's all been passed, it's all a done deal. And I, and I understand that these standards are trying to hang on to some of our control, but I just, you know, I think we ought to stand up and step up. So that's all I'm saying. And that's all I've got to say. So um, I, I think I'm the last one. So with that, I will close this item and move on to, just a minute, let me back up my screen here. So I, I think I know where I'm going next. Chair's report. All right, that would be me. I have two items. One is that, as we all know, the community in Fairview has been very concerned about escape routes. And the Fairview Fire District has put together a plan for, for just that purpose. And they are, 
interested in partnering with the um, Public Works Department for signage so that people in Fairview know how to get out. And I'm thinking that maybe it would be a good idea to invite, um, I'm just blanking on his name, Preston, Mike Preston, or um, someone of his ilk to come into maybe our next meeting and talk about what's been going on with that. And um, maybe Public Works can be present to talk about um, partnering with them. Um, they're willing to pay for the signage. They haven't designed that because they figure that's what Public Works is good at. But um, it's, it's, you know, ready, ready to go pretty much. So I wanted to report that out, that I'd had that conversation. And then the next thing um, I'd like to comment on is that um, this was a fabulous hybrid meeting this evening. We had people from the community online. We had staff online. We had people here in the room. We had staff here in the room. But one of our members on the council was not allowed to be here because he could only come virtually. And I um, object to that strongly. Um, if we're gonna have members on this council who have lives outside being on this council, they have children, they may have um, elderly parents, they have other issues to say that now all of a sudden, because we're hybrid, that they cannot be a part of this meeting is um, unconscionable. And it's inconsistent with the way everybody else is treated. Other people were here virtually because they had things going on in their private lives, but they could be here. And um, our council, our missing council member could have been here. He, he wanted to be here. He has a sick child at home. And so he was denied access to this meeting. And I am, I'm just livid, okay? So I'll be quiet now, but I want that in the record. I just think that's wrong. Thank you. Those are my comments. Do we have comments from any of the other council members? Dale, I'll call on you first. Is there an answer to that about Shane not being here? Yes. Uh, with, sorry, go ahead. Ashley, go ahead. Uh, yes. So Shane would have had to uh, let us know so that we could post it on the agenda, his home address, and then it would have to be posted to his house. And there is only uh, a certain amount of numbered meetings that you can do remote. Tona, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the number is three. So it would have had to be posted on the agenda and then posted publicly at his home. So um, y'all that weren't here, were you, did you have it posted in your front yard that you weren't gonna be here tonight? Sally, it's related to Brown Act bodies and the members, council members only. It's legislative. It's part of the Brown Act and, and it's part of the legislation that was passed related to Brown Act bodies and the requirements of such. And uh, council went over those at the uh, work session that we had and what those um, requirements were. So it does not, uh, it, it only affects the Brown Act body members. Is that three times per body or three times per member? We can get you the specifics again. You have it in your packet from the work session. We can okay, bring it forward. It's not per member and it's, it's 
very specific and I don't recall if it's two or three, um, but uh, it, it's part of that legislation. Thank you. <clears throat> I've got uh, two things, if I may quickly. Um, Tona, we're, um, we, we've talked about, I'm not sure how specifically about trying to get a report from planning on the status of the ADU um, ordinance they're drafting. Uh, even if they just tell us where it is or what the considerations is, I think a uh, concern in Fairview that we have is we made specific requests of planning for stuff that we wanted to have included, stuff that are uh, uh, items that the Hayward Fire Department is totally on board with and is supporting, and um, we just want to we just want to hear that it's that, that it's being considered. Um, for one thing, and the other thing is the overall general status of what's happening with the ADU ordinance. I checked with planning and Rodrigo specifically, and it's in county council. And it's not right. ready to come uh, be presented yet. Well, though so it's still in review. <clears throat> Why couldn't we have a, a report on what was sent to county council? Because it's not within final draft, so it's an internal document, is my understanding. It's an internal document. Uh-huh. Until it's approved by council. And then, then there's a roadshow? Yes. Okay. Um, and what's the status, if I may ask, on the filling the vacancy on the board? Um, we have... Uh, applications and uh, we are setting up interviews with the supervisor. So the, the application process is closed? Yes. And, and, and you're meeting with the candidates or the applicants? Right, as you may recall, the supervisor meets directly with all applicants and so Austin in our office is scheduling those with the supervisor's calendar. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Dale. Uh, Chris uh, has no reports, so staff announcements. Nothing for me. Nothing for me. Okay. With that, guess what? We adjourn before 8.30, yay! Thank you, county staff back there for the huge setup and all the